90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, doing pretty well, John. How about yourself? Oh, not too bad. Had a, a little bit of an exciting drive home doing a, a little mini core punch, and we're probably going to hear some, some rolling thunder in the background. Oh, that's awesome. I think we've had more rain in Oklahoma than we've had in the past three months combined, and so that's been quite lovely as well. It has been shockingly fall-like in both temperature and precipitation totals out here. <laughs> I know. I uh, I actually cruised off to Colorado um to have a nice respite before school starts. And so it was beautiful. I was not adequately dressed. I had to buy sweatpants. It was so cold. (laughs) You know, this is the second time on the show that we've talked about you having to buy warmer clothes when you came to Colorado. (laughs) You know, I just do it on purpose so I can go and actually, (laughs) you know, go shopping. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Thanks for pointing it out, though. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I think that the weather turned out to be uh, rather appropriate for the show because I'm really excited about our guest today. I am too. This is a big throwback for me because we're talking with someone that I graduated meteorology with. So that's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome Dr. Eric Bruning to the show. How are you? Doing fine. So could you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, I, uh, as as Shannon mentioned, went to uh, Oklahoma for undergrad and got a meteorology degree there and uh, enjoyed my time so much there. I I stayed in, did a master's and PhD there as well. Um, So uh, yeah, it was, uh, I think, about nine years in Oklahoma. And uh, from there, I went to a postdoc in uh, the Washington, D.C. area working with NOAA and uh, then took a job down here at Texas Tech. Well, I have to say, Eric, I got you beat because I just stayed and now I work there instead. So <laughs> sorry you had to leave. <laughs> yeah, and I saw you got out of uh, out of meteorology and uh, into geology, right? I did. I kept my feet on the ground, got my head out of the clouds, all that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that seems to be the path that both of us took, except Shannon stayed in geoscience and after doing my PhD in geoscience, I went back to meteorology. <laughs> we, we all have kind of uh, winding paths, it seems like, in academia. So I, I'm curious how you got to where you are today doing the research that you're doing at Texas Tech. Right, yeah, the, the lightning uh, connection goes, uh, goes quite a ways back for me, actually. I, I got uh, roped into a, a lightning research group that was uh, attached to the National Severe Storms Lab, which is also in, in Norman. It's a NOAA research agency. And uh, and uh, started there in the fall of my freshman year, actually doing a, doing glamorous things like degreasing uh, motors for an upcoming field program. And uh, <laughs> did a field program the next summer uh, between my freshman and sophomore years and uh, really, really liked the group I was in. So I, I didn't even change research groups since, uh, since early undergrad uh, all the way through my PhD. Wow, I didn't realize that. So, well, I mean, I didn't either, I guess. So <laughs> that shouldn't be that surprising. Um, so who did, you, who did you wind up working with primarily? With, primarily with uh, Dave Rust and Don McGorman. And uh, so that's uh, kind of the, the core of the lightning research group uh, at uh, NSSL at the time. Right. 
Uh, so you wound up going on some of those really fun um, research outings, um, like Steps and Vortex and things like that, chasing light. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So Steps was uh, that that field program between my freshman and sophomore years in two thousand, and that was uh, that was um, a lot of fun. You living in the middle of nowhere in, in Kansas for a while and uh, <laughs> getting to know all the all the friendly locals and uh, all of the all of the little fields where you can launch balloons really easily. So um, it was a very engaging project. You're out, uh, it was my first experience chasing and uh, you know, you're launching these big balloons um, out of the back of a U-Haul truck and uh, you know, connecting several pounds of instruments to them and trying to get them ingested by the storm. What could go wrong? <laughs> Quite a bit. <laughs> I remember once we, uh, we were doing a, instrument comparison flight actually between two of the instruments and uh uh, to cross calibrate them and uh, we got the balloon off the ground and shortly thereafter the uh, instruments fell out of the sky and back to the earth so um (laughs) you know rigging didn't hold up in that case (laughs) i seem to remember playing a lot of frisbee and watching storms that were outside our area during most of steps that's that's my memory of it <laughs> yeah it was uh I, I know it was a huge disappointment for the people that came up there for like tornadic storms because it was uh i think there was one of those for the whole uh six-week campaign there was <laughs> wow so <laughs> i i'm curious i guess going a little further back why you decided to pursue meteorology and then lightning research Specifically, is this something that you've always been interested in or something that captured your attention uh, as you were starting your undergrad career? Right. Um, I, I don't think I went into undergrad with uh, with a goal of studying lightning or anything like that. I was actually terrified of it uh, growing up. And um, I suppose in some ways that's uh, the scientist's response to uh, uh, the scientific mindset of you're like, well, I'll go study the thing. Um, but you know, the, the lightning research focus in particular was uh, basically by accident because that was the research group I got an offer in uh, early on. Um, I got into meteorology uh, really for the for the math and the physics of it. Um, I I, uh, I certainly enjoyed the weather and computing and um, you know knew I enjoyed my math and, and science classes in in uh, high school. So. Um, yeah, I I was uh, I, I got into it, uh, sort of finding it. It was a good overlap of each of those those interests. I think a lot of people are always disappointed when they get into meteorology because they think it's all glamorous chasing, and then they find out how much math is involved, and then they immediately bail, as we can attest to by our large freshman class sizes, and then would we graduate like thirty eight or nine or something like that. Yeah, I think it was in excess of 50% attrition for that that reason and, mm-hmm. and a few others, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I definitely agree. I enjoy meteorology for those nice integrations, and we talk about on here a lot, cross-disciplinary comparisons, and there are those people that like that, uh, but it's not all just chasing. But you've been fortunate to be able to do quite a bit of field work, and I definitely want to get to that. But before we get there... What is lightning fundamentally? It's uh, it's a big spark, and uh, it's uh, it's a spark that's scaled up to the size of a whole thunderstorm, and that gets its electrical energy uh, from the thunderstorm. Um, and so, um, I guess we could we could talk a little bit about how that works from the thunderstorm point of view. I, what what uh, what would you where would you like to go with that? 
yeah, I think learning some about how this charge difference that we need to create this large spark uh, comes about would be really interesting. Yeah, so, um, it, you know, a thunderstorm uh, is a very, very tall thing, extends throughout the whole troposphere, and uh, as, uh, as you go up in the troposphere, the temperature decreases. So um, at some point, the temperature falls below freezing, and in that zone between freezing and minus 40 Celsius, uh, which is where... Um, which is where all of the liquid water has to turn to ice. In that zone, it's possible to have ice crystals and snow and little uh, ice pellets uh, called grapple. Those are uh, all mixed in there together with supercooled water. And uh, that set of conditions is, is the necessary ice physics for uh, separating charge. And so uh, when bigger ice particles collide with smaller ice particles, those... Uh, those separate charge, one gets positive, one gets negative, and then the bigger ones precipitate out, and then you get net charge separation uh, that way. And so lightning is the thing that's trying to basically equalize those charges in that environment. Yeah, that's right. So once you've once you've separated those charges, an electrical stress builds up inside the storm, and uh, at some point you could, you could say that the, the air can't take it anymore and uh, the air breaks down, and um, a lightning discharge develops with, uh, uh, from, from some spot with a large electric field. Um, there's a, a positive channel goes one direction and a negative channel goes the other direction. And then from there develops into the charge regions and charge is transported along that channel, uh, reducing that, that energy imbalance. And so that doesn't just happen in the cloud. There's all different types of lightning, right? I mean, I know we talk about them, you know, CG, intercloud, stuff like this, but that's not just a cloud phenomenon. Obviously, you see these bolts that come all the way down, right? So you're getting charges from the ground, too. That's right. So, so yeah, those are the, the two big categories that you mentioned there. There's the, the cloud-to-ground uh, lightning flashes, and then there's also the, the in-cloud lightning flashes. Um, most of the cloud-to-ground strikes actually start up in the cloud the same way an in-cloud flash does. And, um, and uh, so, so every lightning channel um, starts with that sort of bi bi-directional process inside the cloud. And then um, I mentioned this energy imbalance before, and it's um, when you have an excess of charge in the storm, um, an excess of electrical energy of one polarity that can't be equalized within the cloud, then it's energetically favorable for the um, the strike to uh, come to ground, which serves as a as a sort of infinite sink for charge when that ground connection is made. So, are all of these lightning bolts? Let's let's pick a, a cloud to ground. Are all of them roughly the same, other than maybe variations in the amount of current in them, or can you get different polarities? And what are some of the controls on these types of bolts? Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's definitely different polarities of lightning that can happen. So you can have um, typically a negative strike to ground, which results from a, a large uh, well of negative charge in the middle of the storm. Um, and uh, that's those are the negative ground strikes. Um, 
you can also have flashes that remain in the cloud that move charge from a negative charge region in the middle of the storm to lower in the storm. And then you can also have um, typical intracloud flashes are uh, between an upper positive charge region and a mid-level negative charge region in the storm. Um, so those are the sort of three basic categories. And then we can, we can talk about how it gets a lot more complicated than that, and there's ways that you can make uh, positive ground strikes, and there's ways um, uh, to greatly enhance the rate at which uh, cloud flashes happen relative to ground strikes. So it sounds like this, the whole storm, it's not the, the, the traditional simple story that we hear about lightning forming. It's a really complicated and electrically stratified environment. Yeah, so most uh, most sort of garden variety, um, you know, afternoon air mass storms or, or uh, uh, multicellular convection, as a meteorologist would call them, um, those storms are um, typically those three charge layers, and they're fairly well horizontally stratified. And then the more intense the uh, the updraft gets, that produces turbulence. And uh, this is one of the more exciting findings in the last uh, decade or two is that these lightning flashes inside the cloud come in a whole bunch of different sizes. So there's, um, you know, the the typical ones that you might have in these these garden variety storms with a low flash rate. They're going to be about uh, ten kilometers or you know, seven eight miles wide uh, inside the cloud, in terms of how far the the flash extends in the horizontal. Um, but when you get into these um, storms with very turbulent updrafts, that stirs around the uh, the charge in the storm. You get all these little pockets and also very rapid charge separation rates. And so you get this very complicated electrical structure and very high flash rates um, if the if the vertical motion in the storm uh, really increases. Which you could probably um, correspond to um, the pyroclastic thunderstorms that you can get uh, involved with volcanoes, right? That's a really turbulent environment. And so you see all these lightning strikes within the, the pyroclastic clouds, which is pretty cool too. Yeah, that's right. Um, there's, uh, there's in fact, a few uh, papers that came out uh, recently that, uh, that were looking at uh, just that problem. And uh, they made a distinction between um, this sort of continuous sparking right near the vent of the volcano and then um, a more typical sort of plume um, plume like uh, lightning that is very similar to that that you get in thunderstorms and so those flashes go from you know very very tiny all the way to very large as the as the motions and that volcanic plume settle down so yeah there's a neat analogy there actually just like we always say it's the same physics <laughs> in geology and meteorology just different time scales <laughs> So I didn't realize that the, the lightning flashes in the cloud could be, you said, miles wide in the discharge area, right? Yeah, that's right. So is there a current difference? I, I know a cloud to ground strike is, what, low tens of kiloamps? So is there, is there a current difference between those? Yeah, it's, typically the, the cloud to ground strikes are going to have the largest currents and uh, it, it, in the largest total amounts of charge transferred over a big distance. Um, and so that's, uh, that was actually, that's actually very useful because that's one of the ways in which you can discriminate the ground strikes from cloud strikes or cloud, uh, cloud strokes, I should say. Um, and uh, so, yeah, a 10, 10 to 20 kiloamp uh, stroke is 
typical for a ground strike, although they go all the way up into the a few hundred kiloamp range. Um, increasingly rare, of course. Right. So there's, is it a like a normal distribution that's centered on that 10 to 20 range, or is it a, more of a long tail than that? It's a it's a long tail, and uh, it becomes challenging actually at the low peak current end to discriminate between the cloud flashes and the ground flashes. They uh, there's a quite a bit of overlap in in what you'd expect there. So. Um, one of the things that happened with a lot of the ground strike networks, uh, ground strike detecting networks, is that as technology got better, they started improving the sensitivity, which started increasing the number of, um, you know, false detections of, of ground strikes. And so you can go look in the literature and see that there's, um, in the scientific literature publications, studying, um, you know, where do we set that threshold to sort of optimize the rejection of false strikes and um, keep all of the all of the good ground strikes. So you, you've mentioned lightning detection a couple times, and that's actually uh, listener Martin had asked the question of how lightning strikes are detected at a distance. And you happen to run the uh, a lightning mapping array. So I'd really be interested to hear how that works and what some of the logistics are of running this array. Right, yeah. Um, so all of the... Lightning strike detection at a distance uses uh, radio signals of one form or another uh, to do the detection. And uh, so the first networks that went in, these ground strike detecting networks, they work in a, in a lower part of the radio frequency spectrum, um, the LF and VLF band it's called. And um, those that part of the radio band corresponds to um, very... Uh, quite a bit of charge moving along very long channels, and that makes a long wavelength um, radio signal. And then the further up in frequency you go, so the, the higher frequency radio signals, by the time you get into um, like the, the band where t- television transmits, um, that's very good for detecting the development of the discharge path itself. So you know, lightning has this branched and forked shape. Every time it changes direction, um, it's moving a little bit of charge around in order to extend the channel. That emits some light, uh, emits some some radio noise in the form of um, uh, radio noise, which is a form of light. And uh, and that's the the part of the the process that I measure with the instrument that I operate. Um, so that's called a, a lightning mapping array, um, and that's a, a it's sort of a regional scale uh, measurement of the lightning activity. Um, the, the ground strike networks that I mentioned earlier, those you know cover um, you know the whole United States um, with um, you know, a few more sensors, but their spacing of, of their sensors is about um, you know on the on the size of states. My sensor spacing that I for the network I run here is uh, about the size of a county, and I have uh, like a dozen uh, sensors uh, that, that sit there. So is this the only sort of micro detection network in the U.S., or are these in other places as well? Um, yeah, so this this lightning mapping array that I, I run on the on a regional scale, um, there were the first two that went in in the U.S. Um, right around 2003, 2004 were in Oklahoma and uh, North Alabama. Um, we actually, uh, so this is a system developed at New Mexico Tech, and uh, they... Uh, they also had a, an LMA 
uh, in the STEPS program we mentioned earlier up in Kansas, and that was the first big field program that was used in. Um, so the um, since then, there's uh, one in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, there's one in Kennedy Space Center. Uh, there's a few others uh, around the country as well. The Canadians uh, run one now in the vicinity of Toronto. Um, and there's one up in Colorado as well that was put up there for uh, a field campaign in 2012. So how, if there's lightning strike, how fast and how accurately can these networks locate and detect it? Yeah, th so the accuracy of uh, the strikes, uh, for the ground strike networks, that's going to be a few hundred meters typical uh, accuracy. Um, and then the uh, the network that, that I operate, one of these lightning mapping arrays, those are... Uh, typically a, a few tens of meters of, of precision. Um, and uh, that uh, almost all of that, that location of the lightning strike is done by uh, a, a time of arrival triangulation thing. So even though things are, even though the lightning, uh, the radio signal from it travels at the speed of light, it still takes some time, uh, you know, tens of nanoseconds um, or hundreds of nanoseconds to get across my, uh, my network. Um, and uh, those differences in the arrival times of those radio signals at different stations allows you to work back to where it came from uh, in the sky. So the lightning mapping array locates that lightning channel in three dimensions, um, and uh, it actually maps out the whole uh, branch shape with uh, enough time resolution that you can see it develop and... Uh, uh, you, you know, see how it uh, how it occurs over maybe about a a, to a second. So um, it's a, it's a really neat measurement, and uh, I think we'll we'll put some links in the show notes that will give you a picture of what one of those looks like. Um, it's uh, it's I think one of the things that sort of captured my imagination uh, when I got involved in research. Um, you know, it not only it, it sort of captured the beauty that we see of, um, you know, how the atmosphere works right there in the data. And there's a, a lot of richness there to it that we could see that was a lot more than just the, the dots on the map that we, we started with. So, Eric, how would understanding the 3D structure of lighting, like how it takes turns and why it changes shape, how is that helping us to understand lightning more? Well, in, in terms of uh, relating it back to the meteorology, we talked before some about how the you know when the when the updraft increases, we get more small flashes, and so if you can show that um, if if you can measure that reliably in real time, which we can do, um, you can you know pass that along to the National Weather Service or uh, or other end users, and there's a lot of additional signal in there about how the storm's modulating, and um, it it's it's enough detail that you know. A, a sort of low flash rate storm is maybe a couple per minute, but in these big supercells, it's uh, big supercell thunderstorms, um, severe storms, you can have hundreds of flashes per minute. And so there's um, a real ability to look at how trends in the storm, then uh, the storm intensity correspond to that lightning data because you have enough data there to finally uh, sort of excavate that signal. It sounds like you're going to have a master's student working on one single storm event as their whole project if you have one of these sort of high flash rate storms. That's kind of unbelievable that we have that kind of data available. 
Yeah, that's right. I uh, I mean, a good illustration of that from in my own experience was uh, I got my PhD um, a little while ago now, but not that long ago, um, on I think it was about 20 minutes of data from one part of a supercell and looking at the, the charge <laughs> structure that developed with time there. That's unbelievable. <laughs> well, it, and it, so how else... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Eric. Well, I was going to say, it's, it's the opposite of geologic time, right? It's uh, the yes. shortest possible time scales. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just compressed. It's, it's the same stuff. <laughs> right. So how else do you investigate lightning? So we can locate it, we can map out the channels with these lightning mapping arrays and networks, but how else can we study the electrical structure of storms? Well, one of the, uh, I, I mentioned that I was able to look at the, the charge structure of that when I was, uh, you know, doing my PhD work. And um, it, it turns out that when these lightning channels develop, I mentioned they go, uh, one part of it goes positive and one part is negative. And those negative channels are, are a noisier radio emitter and make more points. And so by looking at this measurement, we can, uh, we can actually, uh, map out the the polarity of the uh, of the charge that the lightning channel is moving through and that allows us to then infer essentially a three-dimensional uh, time evolving charge structure uh, within the thunderstorm itself and that's what you need to do in order to be able to understand the uh, the physics of how that um, how the thunderstorm and the meteorology map on to the lightning because you need to understand um, you know, where is the lightning starting and where is it going and what are the ice properties in that part of the cloud and how does that relate to the uh, the thunderstorm's updraft that's creating all of that uh, precipitation and, and ice crystals and things. So are there any other types of instrumentation that we can use to, to look at this as well? Anything that's ground-based or even you mentioned uh, launching balloons earlier. Yeah, those uh, balloons we launched earlier, those were um, uh, electric field meters uh, that also, uh, we flew a radio sonde with those as well that measure pressure, temperature, and humidity, and wind speed and direction um, where along the flight path of the balloon. Um, and that measurement of the electric field also allows us to say something about the charge structure. And one of the things we did with that was, in fact, verify that the LMA uh, inferred charge structure matched the... Uh, the charge structure that was inferred from the electric fields, that's a measurement that dates back to the, the mid-70s, and so we're, you know, there's a lot of uh, confidence that, uh, you know, we knew what to make of the those electric field measurements. Um, and then that's typically paired with um, either fixed or mobile radar data, um, and uh, that's uh, that uh, includes um, Doppler radar measurements to get the wind speeds in the storm, as well as uh, what's called polarimetric radar measurements, where you uh, scan the storm with two polarizations of light, and that allows you to see um, some something more about the shape of the the precipitation and the ice crystals, and uh, even some things about where you might have, um, you know, this mixed phase condition with a lot of water coating of the ice. So all of that together. Um, is, is sort of the standard suite of things that we'll put into a, a field campaign to understand how uh, the electrical structure relates to the meteorology. 
so when you're planning these field campaigns, we mentioned Steps, which was one that we were both on, and that was in uh, Western Kansas. I, where are you looking, Eric? Like, where do you say, this is the place I want to go next to look at lightning? Are there geographical differences that cause you to choose one place over the other? Is lightning more interesting in certain areas? Right. So one of the reasons we went to uh, to Colorado and uh, in, in, uh, Kansas and Nebraska, that area, uh, for the steps campaign was because there's a predominance of uh, of storms. If you want to find storms that make positive ground strikes, that's the part of the U.S. that uh, that you want to go to to look at, and that's very different from uh, the mountains of New Mexico or Florida, uh, which are are negative strike dominated. And so it turns out that the electrical structure in in that part of the country in in uh, in Colorado has. Uh, has electrical structures that are flipped over from that plus minus plus that I, I described earlier on. And so um, that was a, an interesting reason to study that region. And I think, you know, one of the things I t- took away from that experiment is that in order to really understand lightning, it's helpful to look at multiple different regions. So Oklahoma or uh, Texas or Colorado or Alabama. And by comparing those different regions, you get different storm processes and uh, different lightning behavior that uh, um, allows you to really map out all of the different uh, things that that storms can do. So there's these different electrical structures and then so far we've been talking about what I guess I would term as a non-expert regular lightning but I've also heard a lot about some of these higher atmospheric phenomena like sprites and other electrical discharges are these things related and are, do they have to do with this structure that we've been talking about? Yeah, they, they do. So uh, sprites are produced when a very, very large region of charge is discharged all at once. And in order to get a very large region of charge, um, you imagine you might need a relatively smooth cloud that, that covers a large area so you're not stirring the charge around too much, and a storm that's also long-lived so you can separate charge for a long time. And uh, one of the, the uh, storm modes that's very good at producing that kind of setup is uh, a mesoscale convective system. This is the, uh, the sort of storm system that lasts for a couple hours, and it has a line of strong thunderstorms and then a steady rain region behind that. And it's that steady rain region behind the main line of, uh, of intense storms that has a very large charge reservoir that gets built up. And that, uh, when it gets discharged by a cloud-to-ground strike, um, moves a whole bunch of charge from the middle part of the atmosphere to ground. When you move a whole bunch of charge like that, it changes the electric field throughout the whole atmosphere. And um, in, the, in the upper atmosphere, sort of stratosphere towards the ionosphere, um, that field change is large enough to trigger another discharge in that part of the atmosphere. And so that's what a sprite is, is it's a... It's an electrical discharge in the near the ionosphere that is uh, triggered by a very large ground strike um, at the Earth's surface. Mm-hmm. And I, I find it interesting that you mentioned that the you want something that's a, a relatively smooth top. Is that because the unevenness in any geometry, any pointy uh, features, would constant, tend to concentrate charge there? Hmm. Uh, it's more. Uh, it, it's more of a sort of steady conveyor of, of charge that's, uh, you know, sort of produces a nice layered pancake structure. Um, I, I know what you're referring to, too, where if you 
you know, if you sort of concentrate that that charge to a point, it enhances the electric field, and you might be more likely get to get a uh, to get a strike to uh, to start. Um, and so it's 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 true in that sense, but it's not like there's a, a sort of hard surface that's being um, you know deformed into a point like a lightning rod or something. Um, okay, so I didn't know that about sprites either. I just watched a lot of videos of them on YouTube, but. Uh... <laughs> In terms of moving forward with this lightning technology, like what what tech are you most excited about right now in the field? Yeah, so the these uh, these lightning mapping arrays are still um, really useful, and I don't think we've even mined all of the stuff that we can get out of those yet. Uh, but um, there's two new things that have come along now uh, in the past few years. One is a sort of uh, lightning mapping array on steroids, uh, you might call it, where it's a it's a it's a lightning uh, it's what's called a lightning interferometer, and it works in that same uh, high frequency band, but um, instead of producing like a hundred to a thousand points per uh, lightning strike, um, you know, mapped along those channels, now you're looking at something you know closer to a, like a uh, hundred thousand to a million points. Um, and so there's just a tremendous amount of detail. Um, you can actually watch um, a return stroke, which is the bright flash of light that comes from a gra- from the ground, propagate all the way back up along the channel through the cloud. Um, and uh, so that's a, that's another New Mexico Tech product there. And uh, in terms of studying lightning physics and how single discharges work, that's that's very very exciting. Um, and then on the other end of the scale is the uh, the geostationary lightning mapper on GO-16, which um, continuously observes day and night um, um, essentially all of the, the lightning flashes that occur in the entire hemisphere that it's staring at. Um, and so that's a, that's a brand new capability we've never observed from geostationary orbit before, um, all of the lightning activity. And so from a climatology point of view, that's very exciting in terms of understanding um, how that works, and also in terms of uh, taking some of these lightning applications that we've developed with the lightning mapping array and spreading that across the United States, where um, and and really across the whole globe, to uh, you know help with uh, thunderstorm now casting. I guess looking at that um, satellite data in conjunction with some of these lightning mapping arrays is going to be a pretty powerful tool. Then it is, yeah, and, and the lightning mapping arrays. Um, play a, a major part in the um, validation of the satellite, in fact. So when the you know, satellite is, uh, is purchased by the government, they say the satellite needs to be able to detect this much lightning. And so the uh, lightning mapping array is one of the many data sets that will be used to, uh, to say, are we, are we getting, um, getting what we think from the satellite? Um, so that, that works ongoing right now, actually. The satellite was just launched last November and uh, is... Um, has about a year-long sort of checkout process to make sure it's all working right. So is the the sensor on the satellite some sort of CCD-type camera that looks in some spectrum where you can see flashes even if they're below what we would normally say hidden under the clouds? Right, yeah. So it's it, it's actually looking for the, the optical pulses made by lightning, um, and it can do that both day and night. And what you just described is is exactly right. You're uh, you're looking at uh, um, a very a single very narrow um, spectral emission line um, uh, produced by oxygen when it's ionized, um, and it 
that that maximizes the amount of signal from lightning relative to the the bright cloud background and uh so and then it's a it's uh like you described it's a ccd sensor that's staring um at a scene the pixels are about uh, eight to ten kilometers in size and uh that's that allows you to collect enough light to be able to see the lightning pulse um uh, on top of the bright cloud background. So, and it, it, another way of describing it is, it's like you've you've put a 500 frame per second uh, camera tuned specifically to look just for the lightning pulses uh, up into space. And then there's some other tricks to keep the data rate down because that's a that's a lot of frames per second to uh, to send back to Earth. Right. That that's a lot of data. And I, I, to follow on. Shannon's question about what you're most excited about right now and talking about these large volumes of data, where do you think the field is going to be in five or 10 years in terms of advances in our understanding or how we're looking at the problem? Yeah, I think the, the data volume uh, it challenge is, is real and is also an opportunity. And I think it's an opportunity that a lot of fields are facing now where um, it's much easier as computing power increases to collect lots and lots of data in lots of different ways. And so for lightning, we can now measure the, the big charge transfer processes and the channel development processes and the light that's made by lightning and um, you know really look at the entire physics of the problem across a wide portion of the radio spectrum and, and visible light. And somehow I think in, in 10 to 15 years, we'll be able to uh, have a much better sense of how the whole discharge process works uh, because we'll be able to put together the picture from all of those different instruments. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree about the big data problem that many domains are facing and many subdomains are facing, uh, especially with, you know, GOES, not only does it have this instrument, but it's got uh, 16 visible or, well, 16 spectral channels on uh, another imaging system on there phenomenal amount of data coming down very very rapidly so it's going to be fascinating to see what comes out of that and what comes out of some of these inner comparisons uh, that you're doing but before we move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show there are a few other listener questions uh, to start with listener thomas asked that there's been some work in the em community using lightning as a geophysical source and wondered if you had ever run into that or had any experience with it I have not worked with anything like that, um, and just ran across that idea about a month ago um, uh, in a, at a uh, scientific Python conference down in Austin. Uh, there were some geophysicists there in a fun sort of interdisciplinary environment, and um, yeah, they they were uh, got got to talking about to them about this, and uh, uh, so I I'm just barely familiar with it, and I, I guess my understanding is that you you have a um, you need some sort of signal, and lightning is a nice impulsive signal, and so you can use that as a, uh, a way to propagate a signal through the Earth. Right, yeah, so they're doing tomography reconstructions with lightning as the source. And we've talked about on here a paper that a listener sent in actually locating lightning strikes using magnetic methods uh, from the induced remnant magnetization. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So that was, uh, I, th I think that was one of the topics that came up with, uh, those, uh, those folks in Austin. And, uh, it was, uh, I, so I went and looked up a couple of those papers and, uh, yeah, it's interesting. It looked like, uh, lightning was, um, 
it sort of left this residue in the uh, in the rock record um, that sort of dissipated slowly over the course of a couple years, and where it was uh, uh, something like you could actually see the um, the the ground strike pattern, um, which you know is normally maybe about uh, you know five to ten strikes per square kilometer uh, in terms of of density, and so. Uh, it's a it's a novel way of, of going and looking for lightning strike locations. Um, if you could find the money to go like sort of scan that pattern, it would actually be a really neat way to validate uh, ground strike locations because you'd be able to have a very precise spot at the at the ground. So that's that's funny because in my research, um, so I'm a paleomagnetist, so I'm looking at this stuff and I'm trying to find, you know, the ancient magnetizations. And whenever I find lightning strikes, which are characterized by these really high intensity uh, magnetic rocks where they shouldn't be, um, it's just noise to me. And it makes me extremely angry because the the sample <laughs> sampling process is really time and work intensive, as John can attest to. And then you get back to the lab and you've got these danged rocks that are all super bright and it's all lightning. And so one person's trash is another one's, you know, research projects, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like the old story with weather radar. I mean, I, you know, it was built for detecting aircraft uh, in World War II, and there's this annoying background that we call weather that prevents you from seeing the airplanes. But if you turn the problem around... <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, and so uh, on sort of a related note, uh, listener Jesper asked, what are some of the lightning experiments that are coming up next on the International Space Station and why? Yeah, there, uh, there's uh, a follow-on mission to an earlier NASA mission that uh, just got taken up to uh, the International Space Station. Um, it's it was a uh, so there was an earlier mission from the uh, late '90s through uh, just a couple years ago called the Tropical Rainfall Measuring Mission. It had a optical lightning sensor very similar to the geostationary one, but that was in a in an orbit around Earth, um, and that was called the Lightning Imaging Sensor. Um, and they built a flight spare for that when they were putting the, the uh, satellite together in the late 90s, kept it in good condition for a lot of years, and uh, uh, NASA decided to send that flight spare up to uh, the space station to basically continue uh, the climatology that was built with that earlier instrument. And so uh, that's up there now and uh, on the ISS orbit, which is uh, helpful because it also goes to a somewhat higher latitude than the, uh, than the tropical mission did. Um, and so we'll be able to extend that polar climatology and it serves as another cross-validation data set for the geostationary instrument as well. Um, and I, uh, I have a colleague at, uh, at NASA as well that uh, uh, provided me with uh, a, a little bit of insight into a couple other projects that are happening up there too. Um, there's a, a mission by the Europeans that are looking for uh, things like sprites and uh, some of these other exotic things called uh, jets and gigantic jets, um, and uh, also terrestrial gamma ray flashes. Um, there's some lightning process or lightning-like process that we don't understand yet that uh, makes very high-energy uh, radio-type noise that's actually up into the gamma part of the electromagnetic spectrum, sort of X-rays and gamma rays. Um, and so uh, they're they're looking at that uh, with a. Uh, with a with a camera and some other kinds of sensors, um, and then uh, there's another project that uh, is also a um, 
uh, sort of adapting a camera that was designed to look at meteors um, to look at uh, some of the, the optical signals and uh, compare that with the, the, the lightning imaging sensor that's up on the space station. Wow, so there's a lot of space-based instrumentation. <laughs> yeah, and it's uh, it, this same colleague uh, is, it, it had a, a quote that I really like um, in a in a that he gave in an earlier interview that uh, it's sort of this golden age for lightning measurements, and that gets back to that sort of big data opportunity that we have with all of these different kinds of data sets um, looked at from all of these different angles, and uh, just a, a very rich um, set of observations to to look through. I guess before we wrap this up, I think listener Martin probably asks one of the more important things, despite all how interesting all this is, you know, when you're getting this out to the public and everything, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about lightning. Um, But do you have any like general tips about lightning safety that we could pass on to our listeners? Well, there's a, there's a good community of folks that uh, have, taken very seriously for a lot of years this lightning safety problem and have put together a lot of uh, educational materials that are um, are targeted at um, you know reduce producing understanding about lightning and how to keep yourself safe from lightning um, NOAA has a very nice lightning safety page that uh, summarizes a lot of that advice um, the the catchy slogan that uh, is is good advice and the advice I give to my kids when they're they're playing outside is that when thunder roars go indoors and if you uh, get inside a sturdy structure that has uh, lots of plumbing and uh, electrical wiring and that sort of thing that forms a nice uh, electrical shield around you so that um, so that you're you're protected and safe. Um, even being inside a car is a much better idea than being outside because the car has a nice metal frame and the lightning will travel through that and, uh, and then down to the ground instead of, uh, striking you. So, um, that's the, that's the main advice there. And you sort of see the success of that campaign and the lightning safety statistics because a large fraction of the, the people that are, are killed now are, are, uh, um, you know, engaging in some sort of outdoor activity where they simply don't have access to shelter. Um, and so that's, I, I guess, the, the final frontier in, in, uh, in those sorts of things. It's good to be prepared when you're going for any outdoor activity to, uh, to be weather aware and be prepared for, um, you know, the possibility of a, of a thunderstorm and um, to know what your, your plan is to, uh, to stay safe. All right. I think that's, and we'll link in all of those uh, lightning safety websites and resources in the show notes if anybody wants to go take a look at those. But before we keep you too much longer, I think we should move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) I I hear you didn't have your cowbell right at hand there, John. (laughs) Yeah, there there might have been a little bit of reaching for it the last minute there. So... (laughs) Eric, you picked uh, this fun paper, so I will let you introduce it. Oh boy! All right, um, how to introduce this one? <laughs> this is uh, <laughs> this is uh, um, a kind of an out of left field thing, and is the sort of thing that uh, uh, when I mentioned I liked liked uh, the math and the physics of, of the atmosphere, this is sort of the um, the weekend hobby version of that. Um, so this this paper is. Uh, 
a sort of summary paper uh, called A Prime Case of Chaos, and uh, it's tying together chaos theory, which we talk about a lot in the atmosphere. Um, it's the, the butterfly effect that a, a tiny change in, the, in, in some starting conditions winds up in a drastically different uh, final condition and is what makes weather so unpredictable. Um, and this paper is talking about a link between um, chaos theory quantum mechanics and the distribution of prime numbers. Uh, so you've got mathematical number theory, um, the hardest part of physics, and one of the newest parts of sort of classical mechanics all sort of slammed together in this this one paper. And I, I was kind of interested in it because it's, uh, I always wonder like what's the next sort of major frontier type breakthrough that might change the way we think about all of physics and, um, you know, where uh, what's what's lurking out there that might really help us? This was one of the most enjoyable math papers I've ever read. I mean, it's not really a paper; it's <laughs> just like Eric said, it's like the weekend version. But it was super interesting because you know I know roughly about all three of those areas, but tying them together is sort of one of those crossover things. There's a lot of aha moments where people just happen to get together with someone to sort of get this quantum chaos thing rolling and it sort of shows the importance of both not staying so focused in your field and also you know actually getting out of the lab and talking to people <laughs> to help advance your science <laughs> well in this it's quantum chaos is an interesting idea because quantum mechanics itself is based on the idea of <laughs> you have these base states and you use this principle of superposition, which means you stack them all, all on top of each other and you sum them and you get a linearly responsive system and use these, these base states or eigenstates to describe the state of the system. Whereas chaos, you may be able to come up with some general things about the orbit that you're in, but the nature is nonlinear for it to be chaotic. So this didn't seem like these two things would mesh at all, really. Yeah, right. And that's, uh, the, the paper does a nice job of, of sort of introducing that, that paradox. And then, um, there's a, there's a nice analogy there about, um, about, uh, like balls moving on a, a billiard balls moving on a pool table and, um, you know, connecting that to the, the difference between a linear and a nonlinear system. And it's um, so that the part about extending quantum mechanics to a nonlinear, that had to do with something about the, the matrix um, and, the, and the spectrum of eigenvalues associated with the matrix, which is like we're getting way into, you know, deep mathematics here. So one of the interesting things about this is they talk about the... Riemann hypothesis? Riemann hypothesis? How am I supposed to say this? I think it's Riemann. Riemann? Okay, yeah. let's go with that. <laughs> um, and I'll let you guys discuss that because it's way above my pay grade. But um, it's this really cool idea. And they even have sort of a model about when they think this thing's going to be proved. And I was very disappointed to realize their model was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so... <laughs> They did miss exactly when this is going to be <laughs> proved, but we're—I don't know how deep we want to go <laughs> into yeah, talking that's, about that's the Riemann zeta function and <laughs> summing all of these inverse powers and uh, and so on. But the idea is that the spacing of prime numbers has 
some interesting patterns when you look at it in the complex plane and what can we derive from that to talk about the states of these quantum chaotic systems if i understood this right eric is that your impression yeah that's that's what i got out of it as well and so there's this like you said there's this distribution of the spacings and that distribution of the spacings is similar to the distribution of um i believe it's energy levels in in the in the quantum mechanical sense when you have a you know a, a fairly complex quantum mechanical system that uh, that produces all of these different possible states, and the distribution between those quantum states becomes um, be, starts to look similar to this distribution of the prime numbers. Right, that connection is mind blowing to me that anyone would even think to make that. Um, but that was really interesting how they talked about so much of <laughs> math today goes forward with the supposition that this hypothesis is correct. So you know. It hasn't been proven wrong yet, even though they said the proof of the hypothesis will be published in 2011. So, Right. Well, and they also show some computational work where they're trying to find a counterexample to this. And it turns out that any counterexample <laughs> they've ever found has been a software or a hardware issue because you're yeah. dealing with uh, such tricky calculation. I, I definitely highlighted that as a um, <laughs> to put in my folder of, see, you should do this on pen and paper. Like... <laughs> Don't trust computers. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I found this idea of a trace formula really interesting. And they said this came about in the 1960s, uh, where a physicist at IBM said that if you take the classical chaos equations or solution and the quantum mechanical eigenvalues, these are sort of two sides of the same equation, and they're really describing the same thing. So you can set them equal and use one to learn about the other. Uh, that's something that I would think could really fundamentally shape our understanding of both quantum mechanical and classically chaotic systems, right? Seems like it. Seems like it to me. Yeah, and I, it's it's one of these interesting things about you know how really sort of paradigm shifting uh, scientific advances get made is that it's these you know weird insights where you take two things that shouldn't go together and you set them equal and suddenly everything makes sense and uh um yeah i think that's one of the things that intrigues me about this is that you know if that if that can be true like do you have to go all the way back to like the foundations of meteorology which is also formulated in this very like linear sort of sense in the way it's taught even though it's a very non-linear system fundamentally in terms of what we care about um and you know, are there are there tools there that would come from all of this weird number theory stuff, and uh, you know the insights and mathematical tools of quantum mechanics that could reshape how we understand you know meteorology, which is really a very young discipline. We're still in like the first hundred years of the the sort of uh, um, you know modern era of uh, meteorology as a physics discipline. I, you can even go so far to say that those kind of realizations shaping the way that it's taught. I mean, if you teach it from the other side of the equation, you know, how are you changing the way people come into meteorology and begin to fundamentally understand it? And are those connections, like literal synaptic connections, going to be different? And how much is that going to advance the science if you could understand those two different sides? I mean, or can you frame problems where something like you need to solve a the, the Schrodinger's equation for 
anything but a trivial system, which is not going to happen even with a great supercomputer. But can you formulate that problem from maybe a chaos standpoint and come to what some of the tractors in that system are? Right. And learn exactly. from it. Exactly. Uh, the, the other interesting thing in here is they talk about the number of primes can be estimated uh, by measuring the area under the curve one over log x, with x being the number that you want to know the number of primes up to that number. And in a discussion that we had offline, Eric, you said that this one over log distribution actually shows up in some of your data. Yeah, and that's uh, that's one of those, like, whoa, really, sort of moments that you get when, when reading something <laughs> and wondering if you should stop everything and go look at this other thing. Um, so the uh, the distribution of primes and the distribution of these quantum states, um, that same distribution is the distribution of uh, source powers um, of all of these little uh, point sources that are uh, emitted by the lightning channel as it develops. Um, and so um, that's published in, it was one of the first couple papers that was published on the LMA was actually the distribution of source powers. And uh, I don't think we really understand why that's the case yet, but is there like some deep connection to quantum mechanics or is it just a, an artifact of the fact that it's a chaotic system, which we know the lightning channel certainly is. Um, and so it's, a, it's maybe a route to further understanding, you know, some of the very basic physics of, of how that lightning process works. You know, early when I was uh, in grad school, one of the things I looked at was electrical phenomena surrounding earthquakes. And we got down to some really nitty gritty subatomic processes that we thought might be able to explain some of this. And we joked about the field of quantum rock mechanics, but it sounds like it might not be as out of the field <laughs> as we thought it was. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, the, the quantum stuff is, uh, is certainly, you know, pervasive in, in physics right now, but um, you know, most of the rest of us that do physical science have effectively zero practical familiarity with how to uh, make use of, even of any of the, the core insights from that field. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, you know, what's the, what's the next hundred years look like? Yeah, well, and one of the discussions in this paper said that it just happened to be someone was visiting an institution and sat down at a table and ended up sitting across from an expert, and they got this discussion going. Right. So which, which one of these random, chaotic, if you will, events is going to happen <laughs> to help make some of these connections and move this uh -huh. forward? Uh, I will say that this, this paper holds sort of one of my favorite quotes now from our fun papers, well, which I'm sure will be usurped by some dancing chicken next week. Uh, but he says, such seemingly insignificant details are often the acorns from which mighty theories grow. I thought that was pretty profound. Sure yeah, is. That's a good quote. <laughs> <laughs> and this paper is really not that long and... Like you said, Shannon, this has to be one of my favorite deeply mathematical fun papers because you can go into this as much as you want. If you want to read it at a high level, that's great. If you want to start thinking about this plain and complex space, uh, if you want to think about complex space where imaginary numbers are a thing, you can do that. There's a lot of levels mm -hmm. that you can read this paper at. Right, and really get something out of it and also sort of an insight into how science happens. It just fundamentally i think that was this is a really good sort of basic paper for that too absolutely 
So yeah. Eric, is there anything that you would like to add? Um, not on to this paper. I did want to return to, uh, I, I saw in the, in the show notes, one of your listeners also asked a question is how true is the usual story about, uh, how lightning forms? And, uh, I can, I have an answer to that. I'd like to give if you've got a second. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So how badly are we lied to generally? <laughs> so it's, it's actually a wonderful uh, story here about um, how science gets processed through press releases that are put out to, you know, promote new scientific <laughs> results. Um, so there was a, there was a paper that came out back in the 90s that was a very good paper, um, talked about how when a return stroke happens, there's a giant wave of current that starts from the ground and goes up into the cloud, and that's how the charge transfer happens. That was, you know, then formulated into by someone into the press release um, as lightning goes up to the cloud instead of comes down from the cloud, which is true in a very technical sense in terms of where the final energy transfer is happening, but almost every single fl- lightning flash actually starts in the cloud, comes down as this stepped leader, and then once the connection is made with the ground, usually there's a little finger of lightning that comes up from the ground to make that final connection too, um, then you get the current wave that goes from the ground up. And I, I think that's probably the most common question I get from people you know, on the street or or my mom is, you know, I heard that lightning starts from the ground and goes up. Is that really true? And the answer is, I would say probably no. Um, if you watch a high-speed video of how lightning forms, it's coming down from the cloud, and then you get the big bright flash. Um, so I'd, it's, uh, I guess another way of answering that is it depends on what part of the process you're talking about. And is the best way to look at that, I remember years ago now, the, the late Tim Samaras showing some ultra-high-speed video of this process is that the the best resource that we can point people to to see the stepped leader coming down and then the return stroke yeah that's right so um there's uh tim samaris um also tom warner uh, has done a bunch of good work in that area recently um and yeah those are you know about ten thousand frame per second type videos that are uh that, that really show this process nicely you can even see um some distinction between the way the positive and the negative channels work um, a negative channel is going to develop very smoothly with kind of continuous brightness, and the positive channels, when they develop, have this kind of strobing disco effect to them um, that are called uh, they're called recoil uh, leaders um, that have to do with uh, the way the the charge is being developed and the difference in the positive and negative ends. Wow! So you've got you can actually visually tell the difference between those two. That's that's amazing, and that you get this this strobing effect. I never would have imagined that. And 10,000 frames a second. I know that there are high speed cameras out there that will do that, but when you're trying to do this in a very high dynamic light range, like a lightning event, this isn't just somebody going out and getting a traditional off the shelf, high speed camera, right? Um, well, yeah, it's not, well, I guess it depends on what you mean by traditional high speed camera. I mean, that that's another like technology that's really advanced rapidly in the last 10 years, um, to where, you know, for several thousand dollars, you can probably get something that will do a decent job. Um, and, uh, so, you know, any of the, the stuff, um, vision research and, uh, there's a, there's a couple other companies that, that make these cameras now, um, that are reasonably off the shelf type propositions. You have to know what you're doing, of course, but most photographers have to know what they're doing to get a good lightning shot too. 
Well, John's got his uh, wish list for his next um, large technology purchase now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, high-speed cameras and lasers are always favorites. So. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's been absolutely awesome to reconnect with you, Eric. And thanks so much for coming on the show and talking to, to us about this uh, shocking subject. Yeah, it's, it's, oh. it's a pleasure. I got a real charge out of it. <laughs> yes. It, it was it was an electrifying discussion. So, <laughs> Shannon, if somebody wants to get a hold of the show and tell us about their high-speed lightning photography or anything else that they're pursuing, how can they do that? You can email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, you can always find us on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. And then we're hanging out in the Slack chat room, swung.rocks on the Don't Panic channel. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.